You know, the Lord is obviously, he's in this place. He's moving in our hearts and our lives. So come on, let's just, uh, let's just thank him one more time for what he's been so good to us. Come on, he has been so, so good to us. It's so good to see you guys. We want to welcome everybody watching online, especially those in Grayson. So good to tune in with you guys. I believe God's got something great going on in Carter County. He's using you guys in a great way. And speaking of the region and what God's doing in Bath County, Carter County, and even here today, even in Round County, it's last week at our supply job. Y'all just saw that over $26,000 given back to our communities. Is that not amazing? How God could take something so little and bless it. And to, to use it to minister to other people. So listen, God is using you guys in an unbelievable way. And so we finished up this series called Imperfect today. And I'm really excited about today as we end this series. we got some exciting things happening. One, we're about to celebrate communion today as a family at one church in two locations. We're really excited about that. But also here at the Moorhead campus, after the second service, we're going to have an outdoor baptism. We love outdoor baptism. We have people going to be baptized. So that's awesome as well. You're more welcome to come back, be part of that or maybe you're today going I never have been baptized well guess what today's a great day to do it it's going to be outside it's going to be hot it's going to be awesome so I just want to encourage you, if that's you sign up to be baptized because we're going to do that after the second service today so if you have your Bibles I want you to go with me to John chapter 7 we're going to look at John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 today as we finish up this series called imperfect and what we realize over this series is let's just face it right we're not perfect like that's a shocker to anybody right we know that we're not perfect we know that we're messed up we know that we still carry guilt and how do we get through it we talked about that in week two we talked about that I'm not perfect but (laughs) but what but I am forgiven and that's a big difference as well and then we talked about imperfect mom like what does mom's need on mother's day last week we talked about how God uses imperfect people in a story like the little boy with the five loaves of bread and the two fish and God multiplies it and wants to use you and today I want to finish this series with something that's really near my heart that hopefully that the Lord would speak to you as well and so I need to give you a little background and so there's some context to put this uh, this story together so you know exactly what's taking place now if you've been in church before or around church you probably have heard this somewhere down the line and if you're new to church or you haven't been this may be new to you and I hope the Lord will just open all of our eyes to see what's happening right here in the text so in John chapter 7 I'm just going to walk you through a little bit I just want to encourage you maybe sometime this week to grab your Bible read John chapter 7 and 8 so you can understand the whole thing that's taking place. But let me just give you a little background what's going on. There's a plot to kill Jesus. They didn't like the Pharisees, didn't like how he talked, they didn't like how he spoke, they didn't like all the miraculous signs. He was turning, you know, the things upside down of what they had been trying to build and, and, and who they were in their own little society. And there's a plot that's out to try to kill Jesus. Now, what's happening right here in the text is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Real quick, you remember back in in, in the Old Testament when uh, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness? They lived in tents for 40 years. So for 40 years, they would wander around and lived in tents, but God protected them and God provided for them. So they would have a seven-day celebration feast where they would move out of their homes into tents in their yard, in the community. And if you were Jew and you didn't live here in the society, you would make the trek back here to the town and you would borrow a tent or you would build a tent in your front yard around the streets or out in the community somewhere and you would move out of your house and you would go live inside of a hut in a tent 
for seven days to remind you of what God did in the wilderness. How he's the God who provides the manna. How he's the one who takes care of you. So it's a way just to remember what God has done. And it's kind of fascinating here even on Memorial Day weekend. And we're sitting here to remember those who we love who may have passed on uh, before us. Memory days there in, in Grayson as we remember that. And we kind of celebrate a little bit of life. To celebrate life that has been good. And, and the people who we love dear to us. This is the way for them to celebrate what God did. And so now it's the Feast of Tabernacles. So put yourself in that mindset. People are living in tents. They're all over the city. It's all over the place. People are walking and having fun and eating and carrying on and reminding themselves of what God has done. So Jesus doesn't want to go yet down into the Feast of Tabernacles because there's a plot to kill him. So finally, we find in John chapter 7, he makes his way down secretly, the Bible says, because everyone is looking for Jesus because of all the miraculous signs. So he finds his way down into the, into the city, and he's hanging out, and he's kind of behind the scenes so no one will see him. And then all of a sudden, he appears in the temple. And he goes to the temple, and he begins to teach. And people were amazed at his teaching. Now you imagine this, Jews come from all over the land, they have tents scattered over thousands and thousands of people living in huts in this seven-day uh, feast of tabernacles. And so they're sitting here, and Jesus begins to teach, and he begins to reveal himself. And everybody's like, oh, my goodness. I have never heard anyone teach like this in my entire life. And all of a sudden, he begins to say, and he said something that starts the showdown for what we're about to see in chapter 8. He says, Moses gave the law... Yet none of you obey it. And you can see the Pharisees going, wait, what? We know the law. We obey the law. We've got it memorized, forwards and backwards. We know the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. We know all that stuff. What do you mean that we don't understand it? And so a debate broke out. They got mad at Jesus because there was a man who was sick and Jesus healed them on the Sabbath. And they said, you are working on the Sabbath and therefore you are not allowed to heal this man. Jesus says, well, let's just put this back in your court. If you have a son and on the eighth day when your son is born, you are to circumcise your son, correct? And they're like, that's correct. That's the law. Then how come on the eighth day when it falls on the Sabbath, you circumcise your son on the Sabbath, which means you are working. So if you're accusing me of healing this man, I'm accusing you of working because you will circumcise your son on the Sabbath. They're like, oh, oh no, you didn't. He says, now go judge yourself intently. And so now there's, a break, there's this whole debate, like, who knows the law better? Who's fulfilling the law? Jesus is breaking the law. Jesus is like, no, you broke the law. You think you have all this figured out, but you don't obey the law. And then all of a sudden, the people around the crowd is going, is this not the man they're trying to kill? There's a plot. Remember, everybody knows there's a plot to kill Jesus. If this is the man they're trying to kill, how can he stand up in public, teach like this, and no one lays a hand on him? And then here's, here it is. Here's what, here's what makes the whole statement. You can read in John chapter 7. They said, do our leaders believe he's the Messiah? Do our Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the priest, do they believe because no one is debating him or touching him for saying these things? Well, word gets back to the Pharisees that the people believe that they believe that he's the Messiah. So in John 7, 32, he sends the, the, the temple uh, guards down to arrest Jesus. 
So now the temple guards go down to arrest Jesus, and Jesus is standing there, and all of a sudden they begin to pray. It's the last day of the feast, and guess what they prayed on the last day of the feast? God, thank you that you are a provider. God, thank you that you're the one who dropped manna from heaven and took care of us for 40 years in the wilderness. So, Father, we're going to pray that for the next year into the tabernacles of feast that you are our provider. Will you send the rain? Will you grow our crops? Will you water our fields so that we would have abundance, so that we would have plenty, so that our bellies would be full because you are the God who provides. And so they are praying this. And the Bible says at the climax of the festival which is at the end when they cry out to God thank you that you are the one who brings the rain guess what Jesus does when teachers sat down to teach Jesus stood up the Bible says and I want you to hear what he he he, he yells now watch this now picture this right everyone's living in tents everyone's hanging out Everyone's high-fiving their neighbors, having fun, eating, thanking God. And now at the end of the festival, God, you're the one who provides. God, you're the one that sends the rain. God, you're the one that grows the crops. And then Jesus stands up and he screams with a loud voice, John 7, verse 37. Anyone who is thirsty, put yourself in that position. God, you're the provider. God, you are great. And also some guy stands you, stands up, starts screaming in the middle of your prayer right and look what it says anyone who's thirsty may come to me see they're praying for water they're praying for rain they're praying for God to be the provider he stands up if you're thirsty and you want water come to me and everybody's like what is he doing anyone who believes in me may come and drink for the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from your heart come to me Now you imagine that. It's the climax of the feast. We turn our eyes to God, our provider. Now Jesus stands up in front of everyone and says, I'm the one that gives you life. In fact, he claims a lot of things, right? He says, number one, I'm the source of life in this text. He not only says that, he says, I am the abundance of life. Like if you want the source and you want abundance and plenty, come to me. And then he says, I am the source of the Holy Spirit because rivers of living water represents the Holy Spirit. You see in verse 39, he says this. And so he says this, if you want life and you want abundance and you want the Spirit of God in you, come to me. And all of a sudden, debate broke out. Who is this man? And the guards were standing there beside him and they're like, you get him. <laughs> no, I ain't touching him. No, you get him. No, you get him. Well, no, the Pharisees said, arrest him. I ain't touching him, man. I never heard anybody talk like this in my life. Now, you touch him. I ain't getting him. And we find out in John, we see this in John chapter 7, verse 45. The guards go back to the Pharisees and go, <clears throat> um, we didn't arrest him. Why didn't you arrest him? Man, we have never heard anybody teach like this. This guy knows the law. He knows everything there is. He knows everything forwards and backwards. We have never heard. He is claiming to be the one from God who gives the spirit of God to the people. I ain't touching him. You want him, you go get him. And then listen to what the Pharisee says, because this is leading to the showdown that's about to happen in John chapter 8. The Pharisee said in verse 49, this foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law God's curse is on them now this is a showdown 
He says, they think they know the law of Moses. Jesus has said, y'all don't obey the law of Moses. You're all about the law of Moses, but you don't even obey the law of Moses. And they said, they are ignorant and God's curses on them because they don't know the text. Our boy Nick, remember Nicodemus on Easter? We talked about Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night, had the first Nick at night. Y'all remember that, right? Nicodemus, who's part of this group, stands up and says, isn't it illegal to convict a man? Before he goes to trial, before we hear it, and they look at Nick and they say, are you from Galilee? Search the scriptures. No prophet comes from Galilee. Are you following him too, Nick? See, this is, remember, Nick begins to follow Jesus, and we see him at the end and when Jesus goes to the cross. But right now, he's kind of right on the fence here. We can't convict him yet, which means you can't kill him yet, because he hasn't gone to trial yet. And he's like, don't tell us what to do then John chapter 8 happens the very next day let's pick up with this this is round two see the Pharisees lost yesterday and when you're in a society that's all about honor they just lost their honor the people believe the Pharisees believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they're about to show them he don't know the law we know the law he don't know the Torah we know the Torah and we're about to prove to every one of you that Jesus is a fake false prophet and he's a fraud so they concocted this plan that they're going to capture Jesus why because the people are ignorant of the law and they don't know the law so what do they do they bring supposedly a woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus to see what he's going to do to see how he reacts to the law because now we're going to prove once and for all he's a fraud he's a fake and he doesn't know what the Torah and what the law says John chapter 8. That's all introduction. You ready for the sermon? Scott, this is good stuff, man. Watch this. What's what happened? John chapter 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back at the temple again. Why are you going back to the temple, bro? They're trying to kill you. This is right where he stood in John chapter 7 going, anyone who wants water, come to me. You want eternal life, come to me. I'm the source of life. He goes right back to the same place. He's in the temple. A crowd soon gathered and sat down and he taught them, right? Because where there's Jesus, there's people around them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act. Now, that's very important. Not that we heard, she's caught. Like we walked in the room, oh my goodness, no, put some caught, no, what? I mean, she was caught in the act of adultery. So they take her and they put her in front of Jesus. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act. And the law of Moses says stone her. This is all about the law. This whole story is a showdown about who's going to obey the law and who knows the law. What do you say? Now, I don't know. Remember I told you when you just kind of put yourself in the story, right? When you read the Bible, put yourself in the story because if you put yourself in the story or you think about it, it comes to life. And so I'm sitting there thinking like, this is like a middle school dance-off. You know what I'm saying? Like the law of Moses says to stone her. What you say, Jesus? Huh? You know, like I'm saying, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a big group of people circling around and people going, like, what you say, Jesus, huh? Get you some. What you say? What you say? You think you can outdance me? You think you can maneuver me? You think you know the law better than me? What you going to say now, Jesus? Gotcha. I'm sorry. You got to pray for your pastor. But that's how I think when I read this. And so obviously, remember the people are cursed because they're foolish. They don't know the law. They don't keep the rules, 
right? We just read that. They looked at, Nick said, you can't convict someone unless they go to trial properly. They've passed that. This trial is already flawed. Their anger at Jesus has caused them already to sin by breaking the law of how to carry out a trial. They're not even picturing this. Remember, this whole thing's going down right here. It's who knows the law better and who obeys the law. They're thinking Jesus breaks the law. They've already broke it. We already know this if you know the culture and the context. Number one, last time I checked, it takes two to tango. The law requires the man to be there. The man's not there. This is a setup. This is a trap. Where's the man at? If you caught them in adultery, the man has been brought to trial as well. Number two, if there is a trial, you take them to the judges that sits at the city gates. And the judges at the city gates delivers the verdict. Not the priest sitting here in the temple who is teaching. Number three, if she's just suspected of adultery, like she wasn't caught, but we're expecting. We saw a few text messages, some Facebook stuff. I'm just suspecting something's going on here. Then the law required the husband to take his wife to the temple priest first to see if there's any evidence to take it to the judges. So automatically, they have already broke the law trying to prove a point that they know the law better than Jesus. This is not hilarious. Because they are trying to save their face. They're trying to bring back their honor. And then lastly, there has to be two witnesses. Two people have to stand up and say, I saw her. We caught her. We were there with my own eyes. And without two witnesses, then you can't stand trial. You know the verse that says, well, there's two or three are gathered. The Jesus says, I'm there. And I know people mean well, and they think about prayer services. Like, we have a prayer meeting. There's only three people here. It's okay, Brother Daniel, but there's two or three people. The Lord is present. Let's pray. Right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? That, that's completely out of context. Jesus is here whether I'm here or not. Jesus is here whether it's just me praying. The context of that, whether it's two or three are gathered, is church discipline. He says, when you discipline someone in the church for how they're acting, whether it's two or three, I am there with you to go about them and hold them accountable for what they're doing. It's not about a prayer meeting. Sorry, that was free this morning. I just want to share that with you. So you got to put things in context, not take them out of context. They've already broke the rules. Jesus has two options, at least they think. He could either say, yes, stone her. Or no, don't stone her. What's the problem with both of those answers? Number one, if he says yes, he just broke the Roman law. The Romans set a law in place that says no Jew is allowed to carry out the death penalty to any other Jew. John 18, 31. So what we think was stoning all the time in the first century, they were not killing each other in the first century. They were not stoning their old people. Why? Because the Roman law required them that they were not allowed to carry out the death sentence to anyone without the Romans. You see this in John chapter 8, verse 31, when they said, when Pilate says, y'all go, I think it was, y'all go and uh, you kill him. He says, we're not allowed to. Your law requires us. We can't kill him. You have to do it, which is a prophecy why Jesus died by crucifixion because the Romans invented crucifixion. So they're they're not allowed to stone this woman. By law. So if Jesus says yes, uproar would take place. The Roman guards who are walking through the cities and the huts 
of the people in the, fast, in the Feast of Tabernacles would have arrested Jesus. He would have been seen as weak, not a man of God, not the prophet. So if he would have said yes, he's in trouble. But if he would have said no, then he broke the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses required that if there's someone caught like that, they're to be stoned. And so now they're going, I got you. Yes, you're arrested. No, false prophet. Told you he doesn't know the law. Told you he doesn't keep the law. See, this whole showdown is about who keeps the law. Who knows the law? <laughs> and Jesus is about to show them his mastery of the law. And watch this. And also the Jewish militia. Now, what is that? Judaism has an oral law that when Moses came off Mount Sinai, he had certain sayings. Think about like tweetable quotes. And the oral of Moses' tweetable quotes were passed down for generations to generations to generations. Finally, someone says, let's put all of Moses' tweetable quotes together in a little book with the, the Mishnah. And they would take that book, and this is what Moses quoted when he came off of Mount Sinai. Judaism believes that Moses' words, those tweetable quotes in this book, is just as authoritative and just as inspired as the Torah, the Old Testament. So Jesus is about to show them, I know Moses' tweetable quotes, and I know what the law is in what he's about to do next. Verse 6. Oh, this is so good. I love this little dance off. They were trying to trap him. See, this was a trap. Oh, this was a trap. The woman, this was a trap. This was a complete setup. It's already a mistrial. It's already in the wrong place. It's already shouldn't have happened. They've already broke the law. But they're so mad. And you know this, right? When you get angry, it blinds you to what's really happening, what's really true. They were trying to trap him, saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, the greatest debate out there is like, what did Jesus write? Right? Like, what did he write in the, in the, in, on the sand? You know, it was, Jesus was here, hashtag 30 AD. You know, I don't know. Right? What did he write? But if you, we don't know exactly what he wrote. But if you go back and understand what he's, what he's trying to show them is that he is fulfilling the law exactly to the T. Number one, in the context, according to Leviticus chapter 23, this would be the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, the sayings of Moses, the tweetable quotes, says that no one is to allow to write anything that lasts permanently. You can write something on the sand. You can write something with water on the ground, but it has to fade away. On the Sabbath, you're not allowed to write something in permanent ink. So when Jesus begins to write on the Sabbath, he's letting them know in the sand that will venture or the dust of the temple floor, he knows that the wind will blow that away and it's not permanent. He's letting him know, I'm obeying what the things of Moses said. Here's something else we know. When you went to the priest and the priest now sees who's, who's sinning and your name, the priest is allowed and required by law to write your name down and the sin that you committed. But he has to be written down in a place that's not permanent. So what priests would do in the temple dust on the floor is they would bend down and they would write the name of the person and the sin they committed on the floor. Jesus is following the law to the T. He is acting as the priest when he scoops down and he writes. He's like, you think you're keeping the law? Watch me, I'm keeping the law. See, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I come to fulfill the law, which means I come to obey the law completely. Oh, this is so good. This is what the old King James verse says. He had to make sure that every jot and tittle was crossed. I'm going to obey the law to every T's crossed to every I's dotted. 
And Jesus scoops down and he writes on the ground. What did he write? Could he wrote her name and her sin? Maybe. Could he wrote their names and arrows to them pointing out their sins? Maybe. But here's what we do know. He is following the law to the T. Verse 7. They kept demanding an answer. He stood up again. All right. All right. You want to answer? You ready for this debate? You ready for me to kind of like drop the mic and walk off the stage? All right, here you go. Let anyone who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down and began to ride in the dust again. (laughs) I could see the Pharisees going, "Uh, Bob, you didn't think about that one, did you? Like, you didn't get that one, did you? We thought he would say yes. We thought he would say no. And now he puts it back on us as if, if we have accused her, we throw the first stone. Why did Jesus say that? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the law said the accuser is the one who throws the first stone. That's brilliant. Why is that brilliant? Because the accuser better know like he knows his name. They, they saw it and they caught it. Because if you would throw a stone, you now are held on trial to prove that that person did that. And if you can't prove that they were caught in the act of adultery or whatever you're accusing them of, guess what? You were a false witness. And if you bear a false witness, you now follow the same punishment that they follow, which is being stoned to death. So what Jesus just did is like, you believe that she really did this? Put your life on the line, throw the first stone. Gotcha. I love what my son says. You want some cream for that burn? Because you just got burnt. This is so good. Don't you love the Bible, man? This is so good. I mean, this is amazing. And this is brilliant. So Jesus puts him back in. And the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their rocks and they walked away. Jesus is not talking about if you generally have sinned. We all have sinned. Because even the ministry that here, the sayings of Moses says all have sinned. They know they're sinners. But what Jesus is saying, if you are guilty, if you feel guilt in your heart that, that this person truly has sinned, you throw the stone. And at this time, according to the customs and the law, they would always look to the oldest person or the witness. Where's the witness? Where are the two witnesses going? No, I caught her. I saw her. Get stone. Where's it at? They're not there. It's a trap. This is a whole setup. And this whole story is here just to prove that Jesus keeps the law and the Pharisees don't keep the law. To prove what he said in John chapter 7. You don't obey the law. And they walked away. And then John 8 verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then he asked a crazy question, at least to us. But he is being 100% Torah law required, uh, uh, Torah compliant. Look what he asked this woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Where's the, where's the witness? Who's the one accusing you? Why? Because that's what the priest asked. Who's your accusers? Where are they? Did not even one of them condemn you? Did any of these people condemn you? And she says in verse 11, no, Lord. And then Jesus says, neither do I. He couldn't condemn her. The only one who had the right to condemn anyone to throw a stone, the sinless, perfect Savior, he did not, he couldn't condemn her. Why? Because the law required him to have two witnesses 
And they throw the first stone before the priest, where he could say, you are guilty. Whether she was guilty or not, the law required Jesus. He could not do it. He was strapped here by the law that he had to follow the law. He says, neither do I. She very well may have been guilty. But Jesus says, but according to the custom, according to law, I cannot condemn you and stone you to death. Neither do I. And then he says, go and sin no more. Where are the witnesses that condemned her? They're gone. Jesus obeyed the law. And what's fascinating about it, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world or judge the world. I come to save the world. This whole showdown was over who keeps the law, Jesus or the Pharisees? Jesus won in John chapter 7. Jesus won in John chapter 8. Jesus won on the cross when he got up out of the grave. He wins. And you look at this story, and really there's one final observation just for you Bible students out there. I just want to throw out there. The story never tells us if she committed adultery. We only can assume it's a trap. Could the Pharisees have bribed this woman? We will restore you back to public because now she's public shame for being accused of this. Could she be with this mob of people trying to convince the people that Jesus is not part or she committed adultery? Maybe. We don't know. But maybe Exodus 23 comes to Jesus' mind in this statement because I want you to see what Exodus 23 says. Verse 1, you must not pass along false rumors. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. You must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd and twist the justice. Now, honey, go. Don't sin no more. We know she sinned because Jesus said that. But we don't know the sin she committed. She could very well have been caught in the act of adultery. But without the other guy, without the proper stuff, and without someone there to show, we don't know. But the reality is, the context, that's not what it's about. It's not about forgiveness. It's not about grace. It's not about his love. Is that true? He loves her. He forgives her. He don't condemn her. The only one who could. That is true. But the whole purpose of the text is to show that Jesus fulfills the law, keeps the law. The Pharisees, you've already broke it. And you think you're righteous, but you're not. And you're sitting here and you're like, okay, thank you for the Bible study. But what does that mean today? I say all of that because there's so much application in this passage. We can apply that Jesus loves us and don't condemn us. That's great. Jesus has grace to forgive us. That's great. We can come to Jesus and Jesus loves us just the way we are. That's awesome. That's a great application. But the application I want to share with you today to a bunch of imperfect people is this. Drop your rocks. There's a little bit of the Pharisee in every one of us. We judge people all the time. The world don't need Christian sin police. The world don't need whistleblowers. And Christians are so bad at this. They want to point out everybody else's sin. They want to point, pick up rocks and they judge everybody else. The application I want to share with you today, drop your rocks. Stop judging people. Because we judge people by their character, but we judge ourselves by our circumstances, right? The same thing we do, we're like, oh, but you don't know my story. I had a right to do that. See, we judge ourselves. We give grace to ourselves and we give no grace to other people. Let me tell you what the world needs. The world needs the Christians to drop the rocks 
And so many Christians walk around with rocks all day just waiting for somebody to judge. You judge them at work. You judge them at school. You judge them in society. You judge them in life. And here's the reality. You're just as jacked up as they are. You're just as imperfect. Listen, we're finished a series called Imperfect. While we are imperfect people, we don't need to pick rocks up and throw at people. The world don't need more rock throwers. They're out there judging the world. Stop judging and start loving people. Jesus said, here's a new command I give you to love one another. Are you loving people like Jesus? Are you caring for people like Jesus? He didn't throw a rock. And listen, he didn't throw one at you. He could throw them at you, but he doesn't. Why? Because there's grace, there's mercy, there's love he has for us. Are you messy? Yes. People are messy. Ministry is messy. Church is messy. Are we messy? We are messy. We have cracks. We have scars. We have blemishes, but we're forgiven. And God has taken our mess and he's going to turn it into a message. And the way the message gets out is that when you drop your rocks, because here's what happens. When you drop your rocks, guess what takes place? People see Jesus. They will not see Jesus with you holding up a sign. They will not see Jesus condemning them. They will not see Jesus when you point out their sin. When you have the log in your own eye and you're trying to take the speck out of somebody's out. You Pharisees, drop your rocks. The church don't need more of this. The church needs to show love and grace and kindness and mercy. The church needs to rebel. We're the rebellious ones. This is not our world. We as Christians think the world should bow to us and the world should conform to us. And we go, we're Christians. We're, we're a Christian nation. The nation should fall. Listen, this is not our home. We're supposed to look different. The King James Version says we're peculiar people. We don't need to be like the world, and the world will never change to us. And we don't change to the world. We love people. In fact, let's love the hell out of people. Literally. Drop your rocks. Drop them. Some of you brought rocks in your purse today, and you're already judging and throwing stones. Well, I don't like how the preacher preached. He's yelling at me. Get over it. Drop your rocks. You think about it. Take them out of your purse, ladies. Take them out of your pockets, sir. Drop them. Because Jesus could stand and throw them all day at you. And he doesn't. And let me tell you how you stop judging people. Here's how you stop judging people. Here's how you do it. You got to change your perspective. And the perspective you have to have is a grace perspective. You want me to tell you why you judge people? It's because you have gotten over your salvation. Never get over the cross. Never get over what Jesus has done for you. And the moment you get over God's grace in your life and you pick up rocks and start judging other people, guess what happened? You've changed your perspective. Because if you'll get a grace perspective, and get a, his perspective, it will change your posture. And you will see people and say, woe is me. And you will drop your rocks. So that people can see Jesus. And when they see him, they'll fall in love with him. Because of his grace 
and his mercies. You know what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago? He dropped his rocks and he voluntarily opened his hands to be nailed to a cross. And you know what he says? Father, forgive them for the rocks they throw at me. Forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them of their sin. The only one who could throw rocks opened his hands and nailed them to a cross for you. Drop them. Stop judging. Start loving. Let people see Jesus in you and through you. And let me tell you what, folks. We will change Carter County. We will change Round County. Not we, but God's love through us will change the region around us because of the love and the grace and the compassion and the generosity of His people. Drop your rocks. And then I want to say to you, real quick, if you don't know Jesus, the Bible says you're already condemned. You don't have to condemn. You're already staying condemned because you've not put your faith and trust in Him. And we're about to celebrate communion just in a moment right now as a family. And when we do that, the Bible is clear that the communion is for the family of God, the people of God. If you're visiting from another church, you are more than welcome to take communion with us. But it's for those who know Jesus to remember what He's done for us. And if you remember right now what Jesus done for you and he dropped his rocks for you and put, gave his life for you, would you not give your life to him and follow him? Because he is the Messiah. I'm going to ask if you would to bow your heads. If you're here this morning in Grayson, here in Moorhead or watching online and you've never given your life to Jesus, would you right now give your life to Jesus? He is the Messiah. He can give you living water. He is the bread of life. He is your provider. He can sustain you. He will forgive you. He dropped his rocks and was nailed to a cross for you. Would you give your life to him? And you can do that by crying out to him. Right where you sit, you can say, Jesus, I believe. If that's you, cry out to him, I believe. I believe you came for me. I believe you died for me. And I believe you got up out of the grave for me. And as best as I know how this morning, I give my life to you. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for dropping your rocks and open up your arms for me. Now, if that's you when you gave your life to Jesus at both of our locations, we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate you and welcome you to the family of God. Welcome to a messy, messed up church because life is messy and we love you and we want you to be part of our family. And today you celebrate your new birth, a new beginning by taking communion with your family. And if you're here in both of our locations and you're just checking this God thing out and you're like, I don't even know, man. Preacher dances on stage, yells and spits, man, that's crazy. I don't know about this stuff. Listen, you keep coming. You keep coming. And in this moment when we take communion, it's okay. You don't have to take it right now. You just keep coming. You keep searching. 
The Bible tells us if you'll grab your communion cup, it should be there on your seat in both of our locations. It tells us, Paul reminds us of what this is for. We don't take this flippantly. We don't take this, take it for granted what he's done for us. In fact, the Bible says, examine your heart before you take the Lord's Supper. Is there anything right now this morning between you and the Lord? Would you just confess it? If there's something between the Lord and the Lord convicts you, brings to mind something you said, done, you need to repent of, would you just say, Lord, forgive me? That your heart would be pure, but as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we are mindful of what he's done for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I have received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, which was broken for you, which was beaten for you, which I dropped my rocks for you and I gave my body up for you. So when you take this and when you eat this, remember that my body was broken for you. You do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, which was the third cup. I'm sorry, that's just the Bible geek. I love to talk about that. That's a whole other message. But he took the third cup. And he says, this cup is a new covenant. This is a new testament. The word testament means covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Old testament, new testament. Today, he issues at Passover a new covenant, a new testament. And it's now not the lambs that have been slain. It's the lamb of God that has been slain. And his blood has been poured out for you. I dropped my rocks. My body was beaten and my blood was shed to it flowed no more for you. So when you take this and when you drink this, he says, remember, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you want some good news? He's coming back. Is that not good news? He's coming back. He's coming back. What a glorious day that would be. Come on, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much, Lord, that you, Father, dropped your rocks when you sent your son. The only one who stands who could condemn us. You said, I don't condemn you. I've come to save you and to love you. And for everyone who put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible says there's no condemnation anymore. That we don't have to stand condemned because of your love and your grace. So, Father, we thank you for the lives that were changed today. We thank you as we remember your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us on the cross and how you have redeemed us. And Father, we rejoice looking forward to the day that you return. We love you, Jesus. In your name we ask and we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us online today. If while watching this message, you were led to take a next step or made the decision to start following Jesus, we would love to celebrate with you. Let us know on our website at betterlife.church slash next steps. To stay connected throughout the week, download the Better Life app and consider subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast. Lastly, if you'd like to support what God is doing through this ministry, you can give online at betterlife.church slash give now. We're praying you have a great week and hope to see you again soon.